Would you turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians? This morning we will be looking at beginning in uh, chapter 2, starting with verse 12, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 6. And as you're finding that in your Bibles, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Second Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 12 through chapter 3, verse 6. Hear now the very Word of God. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity, as commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Paul's words here and his earnest labors among the Corinthians and among all the churches that serve even now to instruct us, that bring this fragrance of the knowledge of you even to us. And we pray, God, that as we examine this more closely in the coming minutes, that you would continue to work on our hearts and that we would continue to open us up to you, that we would be remade into that which we will become. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I realize it can be a confusing sight for some of you to actually see me here in worship or in the pulpit, um, as these days I am not here more often than I am here. I feel somewhat like playing a game of, instead of where's Waldo, where's Dave? And, uh, and last Sunday I was uh, where I am inc increasingly spending time uh, outside of New Orleans at our new church plant on the uh, north shore of New Orleans. But before I was there, I was actually in Tennessee. And I was in Tennessee with a group of guys that I actually went to high school with. 
who've been gathering there for the last couple of years at the uh, lake home of one of them. And uh, they have asked me to come for the last two years and we've actually been out of the country. And this year they were very insistent saying, you must come, you must come, you have to come. And so I went. And I have to admit, it was with a little bit of trepidation that I went to meet with guys that I literally have not, some of whom I've literally not seen for over 40 years, and, uh, and spend time with them. And it actually was a very good time. And all of these guys know what I do professionally. And, uh, they, uh, and I knew that at some point in the weekend, it would come around to, uh, you know, what is it that you do actually do? And what do you think about this, this, and this? And, you know, some of those questions were asked with the same sort of attitude that one might give to a zoo animal as they were examining them. Uh, and not surprisingly, even though there was a technical uh, ban on speaking politics among us, politics still got raised and other issues still got raised. And, and it was interesting for me to see just how differently, given really the same set of facts, if you will, that we were looking at certain, that we were looking at certain things. Though we're talking about the same thing, though we are supposedly proceeding from the same base of knowledge, we were coming to vastly different conclusions on, on, on certain matters. And I suppose that's not surprising for people that have spent 40 years apart and have developed in different ways. And that same phenomenon is mentioned in our passage today where Paul is talking about people exposed to exactly the same thing and coming to exactly the opposite conclusion as they are exposed to it. As he talks about this knowledge of God that he speaks of in terms of a fragrance being spread. And that same fragrance, that same fragrance strikes some very, in one way, as a path to life, and others in exactly the opposite way, as a path to death. And so, Let's examine how this is happening, but to get there, to get to sort of what Paul is talking about here, that is really the outcome of his ministry, we have to go through a couple of steps first. First, we're going to take a look at the defense of Paul's ministry that we see in our passage. And then we're going to look at the conduct or substance of Paul's ministry. And after examining those things, we'll take a look at this outcome of Paul's ministry that he's talking about here. Well, first of all, the defense of Paul's ministry. Now, if you know anything about Paul's interaction with the church at Corinth, there is an awful lot of it taken up in his defense vis-a-vis. -vis. There there, we don't have the exact accusations that are being leveled against Paul, uh, but uh, we can certainly infer a number of them. And really to understand at least a good portion of what's being said, you really have to look at it in that light that Paul is defending his apostleship to the Corinthians, a group that really ought to know better and ought to actually engage in his defense themselves, uh, but they aren't. Uh, and so that uh, is going to be helpful to us in terms of understanding sort of particularly the first part of our passage here. And because our passage starts in sort of a 
confusing and curious way when he talks about this trip to Troas, where Paul went, and supposedly there was this open door to the gospel in Troas, and he had to turn from that open door because he didn't find Titus there. Now, Honestly, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, even if you include the preceding passages leading up to that. What is this trip to Troas? What is, he, what is he talking about here? And really, why is he talking about it here? Well, obviously, it's something that would make sense to the Corinthians and probably to Titus as well. And I think we can make some sense of it also as we look at it in the context of Paul defending his ministry. And so... Uh, as, as we see that, what is sort of the criticism that may lie behind, likely lies behind this mention here, is the fact that he went to Troas and saw some fruitful ministry and then for whatever reason abandoned that fruitful ministry. And, that pro- and for people looking for some hinge to protest Paul's ministry, this gives them one. Look, even when, even when things are going well, he bails on them. He doesn't even have the sense to, uh, to in a sense, ride a hot hand, as it were, to, uh, to stick around while the door is open to the gospel and continue to, and continue to proclaim the gospel there. Um, and it's really not apparent at first why Paul would be so troubled that in Troas he didn't find Titus and he gives that as a reason for leaving Troas. And that does seem odd to us, but it would be apparent, honestly, to the Corinthians because Titus had actually served as Paul's emissary to the church at Corinth. And that's something that becomes a little more evident as we read on, particularly in chapter 7 and further in this letter. And particularly, Titus had been there first simply to evaluate how the church was doing in Paul's absence, but even more so to get a handle on how the church had received and more importantly, applied some of what he had said, some of the difficult things that he had said in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so that becomes clear as we read further in the book, even if it isn't entirely clear given the surrounding context of our particular passage here. And so even though Paul is apparently being criticized for leaving Troas, He's giving here a reason that he needed to be somewhere else. He needed to find Titus, and he needed to find Titus out of concern for the church at Corinth, which is why it's relevant to them that he mentions it here. And so, well, yes, it's very, it's, it's wonderful that the word is taking hold in Troas. Paul's uppermost consideration was how is the church in Corinth getting along? And what it really indicates, not Paul's negligence when it comes to ministry, but rather the depth of concern that he has for the church in Corinth. And what might have been for some a point of criticism really ought to be viewed as a point of condemnation 
commendation, not condemnation, um, for Paul, particularly with regard to the Corinthians. Now, something that is in our passage that you would probably view a little more overtly as a response to criticism that uh, Paul has received comes in verse 17. It says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. Now, this is really far less subtle than the, uh, than the uh, mention of, this, uh, of his time in Troas. It's really a not subtle shot at unnamed others who are, who are in fact charging to bring the word to the church at Corinth. And there's ample evidence in, in uh, this and his first letter for that taking place. Now, why would that be a criticism? Why would that, that's, a criti- that's Paul's criticism of them. What's the corresponding criticism of Paul? Well, they're saying that something you don't pay for is something that isn't worth anything and that Paul is not charging to preach God's word, well, it's an indication of how bad his preaching really is and how it's not worth being paid for. You don't pay for it, and you get what you pay for, in some sense, with Paul. And Paul is pushing back on that, that to charge for that makes somebody actually more of a peddler of God's word rather than a minister of it. And we'll look at that in a little bit, um, in a, in a little bit uh, more detail in just a second. Now these are really two more overt defenses of Paul's ministry. And they may actually come across to you as a little bit argumentative, perhaps a little bit unseemly, but they don't indicate any insecurity on Paul's part, rather, They indicate his concern for the Corinthians in both of these matters. Because what's at stake here for the Corinthians is literally who speaks for God and to whom will the Corinthians listen? And as is clear here, their eternal destiny is at stake. And Paul is indicating concern for them in various other ways And he defends his legitimate ministry to them and his cohorts as coming from men of sincerity who are commissioned by God. And in addition to those out front defenses, there's a more subtle defense that is added here. Because when Paul states who is sufficient for these things in verse 16, it's probably it's 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 a it is a it's an honest statement from Paul on the one hand. On the other hand, he is probably reaching back into Old Testament as he talks about here when he starts to make this distinction at the end of our passage between the letter and the spirit. But that echoes the commissioning of many a prophet, most of the major ones, from Moses to Isaiah. You may recall when Moses is called by God, he at first says, I'm, I can't speak well. I, who, who am I? This, you've, you've picked the wrong one. 
Isaiah and Isaiah 6 says, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. You don't want me for your spokesman. Every legitimate spokesman of God, in a sense, has taken this attitude. Who is adequate for these things? Who's sufficient for these things? And this is, of course, the correct attitude when one actually contemplates the enormity of speaking on God's behalf. It's not the attitude which is displayed by Paul's rivals who are wont to promote themselves as super apostles, certainly superior to Paul. And for Paul, this isn't about a petty rivalry, even though his opponents are likely engaging it on that sort of terms. Rather, it's, it's all about ensuring that the Corinthians are listening to the truth and not to well-crafted pandering. So in all of this defense of his ministry, Paul has behind it the actual substance of his ministry, how he's conducted himself among the, among the Corinthians. And we'll examine that for a bit next. And let's start with this incident about leaving Troas. Now again, this was an occasion for Paul to be ridiculed by some by, because he left what appeared to be a fruitful place of ministry. And we've seen that actually leaving such a field, even a fruitful field, was really a demonstration of the strength of Paul's commitment to the Corinthians. And what comes across as Paul's desperation to find Titus, well, we learn later in the book that it's because he carries news of the Corinthians' response to Paul's previous correspondence and all the difficult things that he said. And all of this follows earlier in chapter 1, Paul's explanation to the church at Corinth by the, as to why he hadn't returned himself yet to, to be them. And he says in verse 23 that he did so in order to spare them what would be undoubtedly a difficult visit. And he undoubtedly received criticism for that. This is Paul who says he's going to come, then he doesn't come. And you may recall those words at the end of chapter 1 where he talks about his yes is yes and his no is no, is no, and all of God's promises are yes in Christ. That's all about that. Paul didn't show up, and now he's offering, an, he's offering an explanation. This is why I didn't show up, because I didn't want to have what for you would be a difficult confrontation. So he sent Titus. And that Paul would send Titus, who's one of his leading disciples, who comes to the Corinthians after the visit of Timothy, who is Paul's son and his son in the faith, then he sends them as emissaries. Well, that demonstrates the priority that he places on the church at Corinth. And thus he wanted to follow up with Titus. You know, he wanted him to follow up as opposed to coming on his own. And this demonstrates, honestly, Paul's pastoral sensibilities towards the church at Corinth. But of course, pastoral sensibilities shouldn't be confused with a reluctance to sometimes tell difficult truth to the Corinthians. 
Because I would say of all the churches from whom we have a record of Paul's interaction, the church of Corinth stands out alone in the degree of reproof that Paul sees fit to exercise over them. And that reproof extends to their lack of discernment with regard to which teachers they're listening to. And all of this, Paul, among the Corinthians, is showing himself to be a concerned father in the faith, which is what he claims to be in his first letter to them in chapter 4, starting with verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Beyond that fatherly concern that Paul has, we have, again, the matter that is raised in verse 17, the fact that he did not burden the Corinthians with supporting him while he was preaching to them, which that wasn't, that wasn't uh, limited to his interaction with the Corinthians. The exact same thing happened with the church at Thessalonica. And it's something that really set Paul apart because he didn't want to put any sort of burden on the Corinthians or, perhaps more importantly, create any sort of obstacle for the gospel to come to them. This distinguished Paul even among the apostles it appears, because we have evidence that Peter would, was allowed to have support for a believing wife as he went on his journeys. And this is, this is something that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 9. But that Paul and Barnabas, who was with Paul on his first visit there, took a different approach. As he mentions, starts in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul's presentation of the gospel to the Corinthians was pure and unadulterated, both in its content and in his conduct as the vehicle for it. And he was made, as he says here, sufficient by God himself to be a minister of this new covenant. With that as the background of the substance of Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, and indeed all the churches, let us now examine then the outcome of Paul's ministry. The first outcome of Paul's ministry is seen here in verses 14 through 16, where he says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal perception, procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is a contrast to the disappointment of leaving Troas that he's saying here, there's a triumphal procession nonetheless. Now, as you hear those words, triumphal procession, there may be other passages of Scripture that come into your mind. Perhaps Ephesians 4, which is itself leaning on Psalm 68, where, we ta where it talks about Christ having this triumph and giving these gifts of pastors and teachers as spoils, as it were, from his spiritual victory. And I, I think there's some of that imagery here 
in what we see. But Paul is probably aiming even more precisely here as he speaks of this triumphal procession. Because the triumphal perception, which is which is mentioned by a word used only here in one other place in the New Testament, it's Paul is referring almost certainly, particularly to a parade that would occur in Rome after a military conquest. And in such a parade, the conquered military leaders and even the king himself, if he was captured alive, would be led, humiliated, in chains through the streets of Rome. And there would be often flowers thrown along the parade route. And obviously those flowers would create their own distinct aroma. And for the conquering Romans, of course, that aroma would be associated with victory. For the captives, however, the association of the same aroma would be very different because the culmination of those parades was always the execution of the captured prisoners. And so, as the Romans are sniffing these fine, fragrant flowers, it says we won. As the captives sniff the, those flowers, it says we're about to die. Same scent, very different associations. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the 1979 film Apocalypse Now. Um, don't take this as a recommendation to go out and rent it, by the way. Um, the, uh, if you have seen it, there is w one of the characters that is most memorable from that film is Colonel Kilgore, who's played by Robert Duvall, who is, leads a air cavalry group that uses helicopters. And after laying waste to a Vietnamese uh, a village, he orders a, a napalm strike in the tree line to take out uh, the remaining people there. And after the strike, he stands up and he says, do you smell that? That smell, there's nothing else like it. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. It smells like victory. But imagine napalm, that stench of burning gasoline, said something very different to the Vietnamese who were being conquered and bombed. And it's a similar contrast that Paul employs here to describe how the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ is received. To those who are being saved, this knowledge of Christ, this fragrance is literally life itself. The associations are only positive and sweet. But for those who are being hauled away, if you will, the same fragrance comes across completely differently. Those otherwise pleasant smelling flowers are the harbinger of impending death for them. And this inherent response to the gospel is something that's probably been manifested in your own experience. At least it has been in mine. If you didn't grow up in the church hearing the gospel, you might remember back to when you did hear the gospel first and how it struck you. Now, I've heard many a testimony that 
the gospel simply sounded like truth to them when they heard it. They had ears to hear. They could receive it well. It was the fragrance of life. And they didn't have to work on their own for it to strike them that way. It simply did. Conversely, you may have had the experience that you've spoken to someone about your faith and they react strongly and negatively. The reaction just comes out of them as if they are horribly allergic to the fragrance Paul talks about. Whether they're conscious of it or not, that response comports with the fact that the gospel is a death sentence to an unbeliever. Because if scriptures such as Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where Peter testifies that there's no other name under heaven given, given among men by which we may be saved, if Christ truly is the only way, and there's salvation to be found in none other, then of course, as unbelievers, they stand condemned. They're under a death sentence, and the knowledge of Christ is, consciously or unconsciously, a reminder of that. And in some ways, it's no wonder that it produces anger, sometimes violent anger, and it's mentioned. And there's one other thing to note about this imagery that Paul's employing here. Because to many a commentator, and I, I think I've become convinced of this position, that Paul is actually portraying himself as among the captives in this triumphal procession. Actually, not among the victors. He is spreading the fragrance of Christ's sacrifice, and he's marching inexorably towards a similar sacrifice of his own. And knowing that that was how he viewed it, it's no wonder that the fate of the church at Corinth, and indeed every church with which he's associated, means so much to him, and why he would have anxiety when he had no word on their condition. Finally, when he meets Titus, Titus has word and he affirms that they, at least the believers among them, are in fact being led victoriously in this parade towards eternal life. It is this outcome of Paul's ministry that he has strived, sacrificed, and given his life for. He will be spent, but the church will live. And this is what leads them to being his letters of recommendation, as he says here. Now, this is an allusion to yet another criticism of Paul's, that somehow his curriculum vitae is not that impressive, and it doesn't come with requisite endorsements from luminaries that one would expect of somebody seeking such respect. Certainly, these super apostles had all of that. For Paul, though, he needs no further endorsement beyond the believers in Corinth themselves. Unlike human letters, and unlike the Old Testament law that came before, these letters are written on their very hearts. And this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel 11. Where he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is the new covenant of which Paul is a minister, called by God, and it's a covenant of those hearts of flesh. 
Paul's labor have result, labors have resulted in the Corinthians, despite their many struggles, having their hearts remade. So Paul will happily endure criticism. He'll forfeit his rights. And he'll face the prospect of the gospel being the occasion of his untimely earthly death in order to see this result produced in the churches to whom he ministers and for whom he is a father. And some 2,000 years later, God is still writing Paul's letters of recommendation, now upon our hearts. And the church he spent his life building continues as this fragrance of the knowledge of Christ continues to spread. The question is whether or not we value our salvation like Paul does and whether we're willing to support the spread of the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. As the Corinthians were urged to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ, we too need to see our hearts remade, our affections realigned, and our priorities brought in line with the things that please Christ. And as we hear more and more about him and our knowledge of him grows, may he bring that about in our lives as we seek to follow him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we have this triumph over sin that is secured by Christ and that the parade that we are a part of leads to life and life eternal. Lord, help us to appreciate the stark difference between that and the fate that we would have endured left to our own devices. We thank you for reaching out, saving us, and drawing us unto yourself, giving us hope. We pray that you would realign our lives, that it would be centered on that hope alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.